Hi, my name is Valerie Schmidt. I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It can be found in page 947 in your pew Bibles, and we are reading Hebrews 11, 1 to 2, 13 to 19, and 39 to 40. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for it is by the people of old, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is the word of God. Well, it took us just one summer, it was 13 weeks or so, to teach through the life of Abraham. But as Abraham lived these same experiences, these same stories from Genesis 12 to 22, he saw something like 35 years pass by. And since he's now been with the Lord for 4,000 years, we can't very easily pull him aside and say, Abraham, what do you want us to learn from your life? What's the main takeaway you want us to have? We can't do that. But, but the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, he has written a sermon of sorts. And in that sermon, he's highlighted something that God does want us to learn from the life of Abraham. So as we study this together, would you pray with me one more time? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be our vision. That you would rivet our attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. What you're doing here in this world, among us, among others. But most especially what you promised to do in the world to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid, and maybe 
freshman in high school, maybe a bit younger, somewhere around there. The city I lived in, they had this moonlight midnight bike ride. It wasn't a race. It was just a fun ride. Uh, 500 people would get on a bike at a grocery store and they would go through this route uh, by moonlight and come back and there'd be food and fun at this grocery store. And I, I remember one year very well, or at least I should say I remember one moment from one year very well because the high school friends I was with at the time did not let me forget this one moment at this one moonlight bike ride. I, I, we were riding and uh, had my friend there, Kyle, and I, I yelled, let's race, as I proceeded to already be sprinting past him, uh, which may be considered cheating, but that's, Kyle was faster than me, and so I needed, I needed that edge. So I yell, let's race, as I'm sprinting, I knew Kyle was file, so five, we're in this neighborhood, and about five seconds in, I want to see how far ahead I was still ahead of him, and so I'm riding, and I look back, <laughs> and see where this is going, <laughs> right? Um, the next thing I knew, I'm upside down in a giant bush in the front of somebody's house, uh, and so is the bike, and uh, thankfully the bush was both as soft as it was large, and so I wasn't hurt, but all my friends had a front row seat to me in the bush, <laughs> um, upside down, and we'd pull the bike. So it's not a, not, not a sermon about taunting and humility. That wouldn't be a bad point. Um, but this sermon is about the point that God... Um, well, I'll say it this way. God has designed us to go where we're looking. That's what he's designed. And one of, this is one of the reasons texting and driving can be so dangerous, just kind of in a physical sense of like you're down and to the right. Like if you only end up in a bush, that might be good, considering the significance of the consequences. And if you think behind the algorithms of social media and whatever streaming services you watch or TVs, movies, or whatnot. Like when you when you watch something, they're like, "Oh, did you like this?" Then you, maybe you would like this. Maybe you would like this. And then all of a sudden, like you're over here, or you're over there, or whatever way you go, where we click, we go. And what's true with our physical eyes is true of us spiritually. God has designed us in such a way that we tend to go where we tend to look, and this can be true positively as we behold God and the gospel. And truth and beauty and goodness, but it can be true negatively when too often we just we either fail to lift our eyes to what God is doing or promised to do, see what that to prioritize that, or we, we look around at the stuff around us and our gaze is either enamored with that from a negative standpoint of like, oh, this is shiny stuff, or like the hard stuff, and that's all we can see. As we close our summer sermon series, if you haven't been here, we've been going through the life of Abraham all summer, and I'm sure there are seven points we could learn from his life. I'm sure there's 77 things we could learn from his life, but I just want to go back over his life and look at this one thing, where we look and where we go, and to get there through not so much what Genesis has to say, although we'll get there a little bit, but mostly what the author of Hebrews has to say looking back at Abraham. What we call the book of Hebrews, or sometimes the letter of Hebrews, is best understood as a sermon. And, and I don't want to get too deep into the reasons I would say that, except to say that it's filled with features that are common to sermons. It's, it's explanation of Bible passages 
of course, other letters are that, but it's done poetically and with poetic wording. And then, and then there's applications that are made in the sort of language that preachers tend to make application. Let us do this or let us do that. We'll see one of them at the end of the sermon. But a preacher wrote this sermon we call Hebrews to a small house church, likely a group of weary believers just surrounded by the metropolis that was Rome. And from reading this sermon carefully and studying the rest of the New Testament, we know this group of believers had been experiencing persecution. We might call the type of persecution they had been experiencing soft persecution. Their persecution involved exclusion and scorn. Their society and their government was at a minimum suspicious of them and probably more likely didn't like them or care for them or was frustrated by them, dismissive of them. And that dislike from their society and their government had real and uncomfortable consequences for them. And then that changed in AD 64 when an emperor named Nero came to power. When he came to power, what might have been called soft persecution became hard persecution, the kind that involved dungeons and death. And as a response, some members of this church, they began to pull back from fellowship. They stopped coming to church. They stopped attending prayer meetings. They stopped fellowshipping with believers. And many of those who left, and likely many of those who stayed, wondered if they could just go back to the way things were. Like if they could just go back to their Jewish ways of relating to God, of through the sacrifices or through a priest or through whatever, just so that they could not identify with Jesus and faith with him and identify with fellowship and other Christians. If they just did that, maybe things would be better. That's what they were wondering. And to these persecuted believers, the preacher opens a sermon with really the same exact same verses we opened our service with today, a, a, a statement about the preeminence of the word of Jesus Christ about how God has spoken through prophets and other means in the past, but now especially he has spoken to us through Jesus. And he goes on in his beginning what we call chapters, the beginning parts of his sermon to say that Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priest. Jesus is better than the law and animal sacrifices. You'd have to read the sermon to get all of that. But he's saying through these early chapters that I... I can see what you're going through. I I see the same harsh reality your eyes see. But if you had spiritual eyes to see, you would see Jesus is enough. That Jesus is better. And eventually the preacher comes to chapter 11. Where he points the eyes of... Where he points out really their eyes to what the Old Testament believers had seen and experienced, and hopefully you still have it open. I want to read portions of Hebrews chapter 11 and and talk through this passage together. Verse 1 and 2 went like this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, this 
faith, this conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received not their condemnation, but commendation. God spoke well of them. Here in these verses, we see that Faith is described as assurance and hope and conviction. It's, it's, it's of seeing things that the author describes as can't be seen. That's that poetic wording, I think, that belongs in sermons. And then he says, it's this kind of looking up to God that the people of old, he calls them, receive their commendation. The way God loved them and changed them and approved of them. We might even say the way people in the Old Testament were saved was not by doing all sorts of things, even the things that God told them to do, like sacrifices and all the other things they did out of their piety. It was not that that saved them, that commended them to God, but it was their faith. If you're wondering, how how were people in the Old Testament saved? It's right here. They were saved by their faith, looking to God for who he was and what he promised to be and After covering a number of things, like throughout the chapter, I want to just zero in on this passage about Abraham. Let me read again verses 10 through 16. Here we find one of the phrases we use to title our sermon series this summer. Speaking of Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him, that's God, faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and mark this, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, having these all died. So, He had spoken of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Sarah. These all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You hear all the sight language. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I love that line about Sarah and her faith. Not only Abraham, but she too had eyes to see what God was doing. And I love that line about Abraham. What does it say? Being Quote, as good as dead. (laughs) Church, you are not too old for God to use you. In fact, some of my favorite sermons are not the ones we preach from this stage, but the sermons, as it were, if we could call them this, and I think we can, that you preach when you come and you attend And you rivet your attention on Jesus Christ from the pews. Week after week, year after year, storm after storm, decade after decade, here among us, 
Your spiritual looking to God has a way of pointing all of us, when we know the hard things you're going through, pointing us to the sufficiency of Jesus, preaching, as it were, to us with your presence. Church, you're not too old for God to use you, even if the way God might use you looks different than the way you expected it to have looked when you were, we'll say, younger. There were a thousand products marketed you, to you every moment. Say, be young, be young, be young. That's where it's at. It's not true. We see in these verses, Abraham, he was looking for a city with, what does it say, with foundations. Then later it's described as a better country, a better homeland, a heavenly city, a heavenly homeland. He was looking for a place with substance and security. Remember, Abraham primarily would have lived nomadically in a tent with wooden poles covered in animal skins. And in that experience, he's he's longing for something with permanence and depth, a dwelling that was lasting, that wasn't just shaken by the wind, the sandstorms. But then imagine how this language here in Hebrews would have popped to the audience that was receiving this sermon about Abraham, this small house church planted in this giant city of Rome. Oh, they knew cities. They knew Rome's beauty and its strength, its arenas. But they also knew that cities had decadence and crime persecution and poverty. And like Abraham, these believers, they wanted this place to dwell with God in safety and in joy. That is like a true city. A city the way cities were meant to be. You have these same longings. I mean, maybe not exactly these same longings, but you have them too. Embedded with, within everything that you do, there's this desire for something greater within that. When I read these lines from Hebrews 11, I often think of lines that at least will be familiar to some of you from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. They're lines about our desires. Quote, creatures, he says, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Then Lewis adds, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must, he goes on to say, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. Then he concludes, I must make it the Aim, or excuse me, I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. What Lewis calls a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy, maybe we say fully satisfy, and what he calls a desire for that other country, the preacher in Hebrews calls a longing for a better country, a better homeland, a better city. And the desires we have for a better city, a better homeland, a desire to be loved by others for who we are, 
A desire to find work that's meaningful and satisfies. These, these are not bad desires. But they point, if we would follow them with our spiritual eyes, they, they point us to the greater realities, our longing for a city with foundations. And that feeling of, of being out of place, like not being fully at home even when you're at home. That feeling of like, this is wonderful, but it's not quite as wonderful as it could be. That experience of winning the big game and going, yeah, but it, it didn't quite fully satisfy. Of getting the big promotion and not being fully satisfied. That's not all bad. In fact, that's God's grace to us. To not feel perfectly at home. It's what this passage calls being strangers and exiles. And what's fascinating about that line, the author of Hebrews calls strangers and exiles of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says that of them while they're in the promised land. Like they're in the promised land saying, I, there's got to be a better promised land. A promised land beyond the grave. And speaking of the grave, that brings us to verses 17, 18, and 19. This brings us to Abraham and Isaac and the passage we looked at last week in Genesis 22. Let me read these verses again. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you remember the wording of Genesis 22 when we were there last week? Abraham goes on this three-day journey. He takes two men with him. They get to the base of the mountain, and he looks at these two men, Genesis 22, 5, and he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then you remember what he says? And come back to you. He was believing, I and the boy, we're going to go over there and we're going to come back to you. The author of Hebrews says, he could say that because Abraham had the spiritual eyes to see that God could even raise the dead. If that's what he's got to do, that's what he'll do. And at just the right moment, when Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, God breaks in through the angel of the Lord. He shouts, stop, stop. Abraham, don't do it. Put down the knife. And in Genesis 22, 13, listen to this. I said we'd come back here. here. Here's what I said we'd come back to. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Don't miss that wording. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, that's, that's sight language. The author here is doing something very specific. He, he, he knows that people tend to go where they tend to look. This was, however, a struggle for Abraham from various times. And we saw that at different moments in the summer. Just to give you one of them, you might remember as Tony was preaching from chapter 15 of Genesis. <laughs> There's this line, and honestly, it's one of my favorite ones because it's kind of ironic. Uh, chapter 15, Abraham's a little more grizzled. God's promised to him, 
But those promises haven't been fulfilled, at least as he can see them. And he looks to God and he says, behold. <laughs> it's not God saying, Abraham, behold. He looks at God and says, behold. God, look around. I got nothing. <laughs> like, you've made promises, but there's some guy named Eliezer of Damascus. Whoever he is, we don't know. Abraham, I'm sure, knew. But he's not part of his family. He's going to get my stuff when I die. Behold. What was God's response? After voicing this complaint, God invites Abraham out of his tent and he says, quote, Look toward heaven. Number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Lift up your physical eyes, but in a way, lift up your spiritual eyes, God tells him. Behold that. Behold, behold what I'm going to do. Believe me. Trust me. See we likely didn't notice the repetition of all this sight language and all these phrases in the Abraham narrative, but I want to point out a few of them to you. Over and over again, God tells Abraham to look up. Consider Genesis 13, 14. We read God tells him, quote, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward, westward. And then in Genesis 18, verse 2, before this encounter with God that he has, he says, lift up your eyes. Or says, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there were three men standing in front of him. And they have this meal together, and then their hearts are drawn into this conversation about God and with God. And even the key phrase, I would say, the key phrase from the key line, from the key passage in all of the uh, Abraham narrative, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, has sight language. It doesn't use exactly the same wording, but it implies this looking. Genesis 12, 1. Go, what does it say? To the land that I will show you. Will show. He, he just had to keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And these looking phrases, they serve as a dramatization of faith. To look up to God and to lift one's eyes. They're not merely physical actions, or they're not meant to be merely physical. They're meant to be do what, what we do with our hearts and what we do with our faith, what we do with our spiritual eyes. But we should also see that these phrases across the Genesis narrative, they have what we might call a, a darker and more sinful counterpart across these same passages in Genesis. We can just as easily, and sometimes more easily, look down and look in. The narrator across those same chapters of Genesis repeatedly showed people turning their eyes and turning their hearts, sometimes their physical eyes and sometimes their spiritual eyes away from God. Abraham did it with Eliezer. He's like, look, look at it. All I can see is Eliezer. Where's my kids? Lord, Abraham's nephew Lot did the same thing. When God presented Lot through Abraham with this, this choice, like, where do you want to live? You want to live here? Or do you want to live here? Uh, you may remember that I put a picture of pizza slices on the screen. If you were here, you remember that. If you don't, you're confused. But anyway, there was this moment where like, okay, there's this really big opportunity in front of me or there's like really not much. So what am I going to choose? And, and it's described in that way. And what does Lot do? He looks out. He says, I want to live there. He describes it as this well-watered land, like the Garden of Eden, like Egypt, he says, which is a weird juxtaposition. 
And then the following line says that the very same land he was gazing at was Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was full of wickedness. And what Lot found is that what looked good with the physical eyes, with spiritual eyes, was really living in the suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. And just a few chapters later, Lot's own wife had this same looking toward Sodom as they're fleeing the city in both physical ways and spiritual ways. She looks back longing to be a part of the city that's being destroyed and she herself is destroyed. The consequences were significant. And in each of these passages with Abraham and Eleazar and Lot and Lot's wife and others, I don't have time to go back over, it's as if the narrator wants us to behold the ways we're reliving Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3, don't you? Quote, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, Genesis 3, 6. But we wonder, were they opened or were they closed? I mean, they were opened in one way, of course, but they were closed in other ways. This scene, the, the, the beauty and the provision, the enoughness of God seemed to be obscured when Satan said, is he... Is God holding out on you? Like, I know you have paradise, and I know you're with God, but what about this tree? What about this? And here we find the central dilemma for Abraham and for all of us. Will we look up or will we look down? And although Abraham at times struggled, predominantly Abraham's posture toward the Lord was one of faith. Which is why the author of Hebrews can summarize Abraham's life as looking forward, specifically looking forward to the city with foundations. Indeed, it's interesting, we were preaching through John, and we're going to preach through John, get back to it, in October, but we were preaching through it in, in the spring, and we ended in chapter 8. In chapter 8, Jesus with these religious leaders, and he describes this line about Abraham in chapter 8, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. When Jesus thinks about Abraham, that's what he thinks. He's like, thinks about how glad Abraham was when he looked with spiritual eyes to God. So to sum up, all of Hebrews 11 and all of Genesis 12 through 22, it was like God was using everything that he was doing, all the hard, all the good, all the people that they were surrounded by, all the temptations, all the experiences it was like it was God's way of continually lifting Abraham's eyes to remind him that God was enough both now and forever. I really like the way one of my favorite authors puts it in a book of his. He says, I have a problem with all the chase your dreams cheerleading from Christian leaders, he says. It, it's not that I begrudge people who want to achieve their dreams, he writes. But because I think we don't readily see how easy it is, turn the page, I don't think, he writes, how easy it is to conflate our dream chasing with God's will in Christ. What he's saying is like, I, 
I'm not opposed to trying to chase your dreams, but I don't think we realize how easy it is to just take our dreams and slap them right on top of God's will and say they're obviously the same. He says, that's what concerns me. And then he adds, you know, it's possible that God's plan for us is littleness. His plan for us might be personal failure. It's possible that when another door closes, it might not be because he plans to open a window, but because he plans to have the building fall down on you. The question we must ask ourselves is this, will Christ be enough? It's provocative, isn't it? It's a challenging quote. It doesn't reflect all that the Bible is saying in all of its places, but I think there is this stream of Christianity that it is representing rightly, that is underrepresented in our experience of Christianity. The what if everything falls apart, will Jesus be enough stream? But thankfully, God has not left us without means, we might call them, to see the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus, the enoughness of Jesus. And one of the main ways, though certainly not the only way, that God helps lift our eyes is through our gatherings on Sunday mornings. When we gather, we gather to lift our eyes. And this aim of seeing with spiritual eyes is why we give a large portion of our service to studying the scriptures and in particular a view to seeing the beauty of Jesus in all passages of scripture. We believe that setting aside this portion of our worship service, we believe that this type of what we might call spiritual gazing on the beauty of Jesus is in fact Spiritual, with a capital S. It is the work of the Holy Spirit among us. Christians, especially in particular subcultures of Christianity, we can often talk about being spirit-filled. And by that, we mean all sorts of ecstatic behaviors. And to be spirit-filled may mean some of that, or it may not, but being spirit-filled most certainly means having our affections stirred for Christ. To come to church, to have a spiritual experience, is to come and leave and have affections stirred for Jesus. If that didn't happen, then it wasn't spiritual. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to act like a floodlight that in a dark world throws light on the beauty of Jesus Christ. When, what we can't see with our physical eyes, it's hard, life is difficult, there's all sorts of shiny objects, but to shine a light on Jesus and say, Jesus really matters. That's the work of preaching. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in good preaching. We hope, we believe, we long for, we pray for. And not only do we pay attention to what we preach here at church, we also pay attention to what we sing. I got a quote here from Master, or excuse me, Matthew Westerholm. I don't know him. He's a professor at a good Christian seminary, and he did his doctoral work on what modern Christians sing in comparison to what Christians of other eras sang. Fascinating things you can do your doctoral research on, but that's what he probably spent a decade of his life studying. And it's fascinating to me, we can just, it, it, the clarity of that dissertation boils down to this thesis. Among the similarities, 
That is, between what Christians of old sang and what modern Christians, what we sing. He's saying, among the similarities, one difference was striking. Our churches no longer sing about Christ's second coming as much as we used to. Think about that. And just to give you one example, this didn't read him say that, but just to give you one example, I was thinking about the song, It Is Well. Right, this will be helpful to some of you if you know the old version and the new version. Others of you, you like, just have to listen in. You don't know either. But, but there's a classic hymn called It Is Well, and there's a wonderful story, hard story, about the guy who wrote it. Um, and it's been remade into a new rendition. And, and to be honest, I, there's parts of the new one I actually really like. There's this poetic line where um, they sing that the, the wind and waves still know his name. I was like, I love that. We, we have sung that here before. But the new version is missing the explicit verse about the atonement that was in the original. About the bliss of the glorious thought that our sin, not in part, but the whole, was put on the cross and it's gone. That's missing. It's also missing the wonderful triumphant lines about the return of Christ. Listen to these words that are in the original but not in the modern rendition. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump, the trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. The modern rendition certainly speaks of the Lord's care for his people when they are suffering, but it fails to point our eyes explicitly to the hope we have when we suffer, the atonement, the return of Christ, the gospel. Now, at church, we don't sing only hymns. In fact, I just strategically get that one in there every week or whatever, right? We don't only, but the point is to sing one hymn or no hymns or whatever it is. The point is to sing good songs from whatever generation that would Rivet our attention on Christ. And there are plenty of other ways. I've talked about preaching. I've talked about singing. In the fall, many of our small group Bible studies will begin starting up either again or for the first time. Where our people gather with open Bibles, open hearts, sometimes open kitchens, dinner tables. I heard a mmm. Expect an amen, but true indeed. Desserts, okay, all right. Coffee, sometimes decaf and regular. Okay, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. But anyway, we we do that. There's confession. There's challenge. There's 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 fellowship. There's community to point our hearts together, not just individually, but that words that C.S. Lewis said. If you remember back from the quote, he said, this, "My main aim is to." Long for that other world, and not just my main aim, but to help others do the same. So singing and preaching and gathering. And now we come back to Hebrews 11. And I want to read, not necessarily Hebrews 11, but it was one sermon. It wasn't broken into chapters. But the way that Hebrews 11 goes into chapter 12. Now that we've looked at what the people of old looked at, where does the preacher tell us to look? Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, that language of consider is looking language. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The passage begins with a therefore. And legitimately, while some passages in the New Testament, they describe the Christian life as walking. If we look at the life of Abraham, he walked a lot. We might say that the life of faith is about walking. While that's a legitimate application of Scripture, a metaphor that's used, that's not the one that's used here. We are not to meander. We are not to walk. We are not to pack heavy. Instead, we must pack light so that we can do what? Run. When you run, you can't run fast. When you're looking over your shoulder, looking back. When you're looking at your toes. When you're looking at everyone else around you, wondering how well are they running? Are they running well or not? This sermon would be really great for them. The passage here is calling all of us individually, but together as a people, to behold Jesus in such a way that we run hard after him. And we do it not in isolation, but to this in the arena of the saints who have come before us shouting praises and cheering us on what the passage calls this great cloud of witness. When I read this passage, I think of one of my story a seminary professor told me. He was a pretty good marathon runner, and at the end of many marathons, particularly large ones, like consider the Boston Marathon and the New York Marathon, there, there's thousands of people there at the end of the, the race cheering on the thousands of runners who are coming in. And, and, and so they, you don't know their names, so just generically you're yelling, you know, good job, good job, runner, you're doing great. Or whatever you might yell there at mile 23 as you're trying to get to mile 26.1. And my seminary professor, he, he said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. And he did it, wore a white shirt, wrote on the name with big black letters, Christian. And, and as he's running, what happened was everybody just started yelling, good job, Christian. Good job, Christian. The finish line is right up there. You can see the finish line. Keep running, Christian. And in the same way, these Old Testament saints are doing this for you. Yes, we preached about Abraham, but in this way, he's preaching to us. Good job, Christian. Keep running hard. The finish line, it's right there. Just keep running. And far more important than Abraham preaching to us, we have Jesus. When he died for you and he suffered your shame, when he bore in his body the punishment for sins that you deserved, we might be tempted to think he did that begrudgingly or with agitation and annoyance. That's not what the author of Hebrews says. Look to Jesus, he says, quote, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When the door closes, when the window doesn't open, when the house falls down, Jesus is enough. He's seated at the right hand of God, praying for us, leading the great cloud of witnesses in their cheering for us. And when he comes again, he will come with them and bring us with them together into the new and heavenly Jerusalem city. A city with foundations. A city where we will feast in victory. But only if you have eyes to see it now. Let's pray and invite the worship team to lead us in song. Heavenly Father, there are days and sermons and passages when we can leave like, um, reflectively and pondering things and kind of in a kind of morose or, or just pondering type attitude. But Lord, I pray this morning, in light of what you do in our gathering and the way that the Holy Spirit might work among us, that you would lift our gaze in such a way that we, you would help us to know in our heart of hearts that we have a bright future. And that future, to use the language of verse 1, is we can be assured We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.